Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Livable Launch, where I, Matthew Slutsky, sit down with Jeremy Gladstone, the visionary behind Gladstone Media, to dive into their exciting new launches. His past work with Pharrell, the pulse of the current builder sentiment, the distinct dynamics of the Toronto pre-construction market, and Jeremy's ambitious plans for expanding into the U.S. market. Listen in and stay tuned. Jeremy Gladstone, welcome to Livable Launch. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Matthew. Really excited to have you here. We're starting 2024 off. It's a weird year. We're coming out of a bit of a weird year. Um, So what are you seeing from builders? I'm hearing there's a lot of hesitation in the market and builders waiting. They're ready to launch, but they're waiting to launch. What what are you seeing? Yeah, um, it's a great question. It is a a strange start uh, to the year. Um, what are we seeing? So right now we don't have any active launches this month. And I think what's happening with a lot of our builders, um, is they're really sort of reevaluating what their value proposition is as a company and as a developer. And, um, there's a lot of hurry up and wait. So, um, you know, campaigns that were ready to launch are being shelved and, a lot of our larger builders are really focusing on their corporate brand right now and figuring out what is their differentiator, what makes them different, looking sort of inward at um, their own capabilities and their own differentiators in the marketplace. And I would say for a handful of our clients, we're not rebranding, but reevaluating their communications program and really looking at them as a whole. So, you know, when interest rates do go down and the market does start to pick up simultaneously with launching their projects, they have a refined brand promise to the general public as well. I'm also seeing that. And it, it seems like it's a really good time for builders to start doing that. Everything from builders looking at redoing their websites, bringing it up to the times, changing the, their, their kind of look and feel. As a marketer for builders, how involved are you in their value proposition? Are you going to builders and saying, you know what, you're more on the luxury side. Are you waiting for them to take it in and then you kind of work with what they're saying? That's a great question. So um, a little bit of both. Uh, for the most part, I think in any industry, Um, I mean, really, in life in general, when there's adversity or there's challenge or there's hiccups or financial restraints or the economy's tanking or interest rates are rising, all that stuff, um, you have some options, right? It's either fight or flight. And some people, unfortunately, whether they don't have the bankroll to sit on these mortgages and and projects are closing... um, you know, or some people are deciding that maybe this isn't for them. So I think this industry, first of all, is is weeding out, um, you know, survival of the fittest, I think. So you're really seeing um, the larger companies and the companies that are willing to sort of fight uh, through adversity uh, rise to the top. And then to your question in terms of like, are the developers dictating to us how they envision themselves or are we... Um, helping package that vision. I think it's a little bit of both, but we have a really, uh, we're standing at a good point where we get to work with a lot of different companies and a lot of different developers. So we see a lot of different systems and value propositions and communications. So we are looking at each client with, I would say, a clearer lens. Even with my own brand, I tend to bounce that off of my contemporaries and people that are not as close to it. Because when you're sitting in it, 
it's hard for you to objectively give your own opinion on your own company. So a lot of the time we're driving the bus and really helping them shape that vision. And I'll tell you, 75% of the developers that we're working with right now have requested that we relook at their brand and help them shine things up. It's a great time to do it. You, you, you mentioned interest rates and, and we talked about hesitation in the market. I've been hearing kind of two different stories from builders. Some builders are saying that they're hesitating and they're pausing until interest rates drop. And others are saying they're pausing until someone else launches. They're like waiting for someone else to launch. So they can see how they do before they decide what price per square foot they're going to launch at and if they are even going to launch. What do you think plays a stronger role right now in the launch cycle? The interest rates or just beginning 2024 waiting for someone else to start it out? Yeah, that's a great question. You know what? And there's not a blanket gray answer to that. I think um, there's a lot of different companies with a lot of different styles of projects and a lot of different sales strategies, right? Um, I think right now within this marketplace, there are two sort of anomalies. One, I think if you're in a quasi-auxiliary market outside of the GTA and you're building more of a commodity product that's more affordable um, and you're price-driven, I don't think you're as threatened and I think you're just going to go full steam ahead and I'm seeing it with some of my clients. On the flip side, we work with a lot of luxury product and I think if you're in that realm as well, I don't think that the current landscape of the banks and the interest rates are heavily affecting decisions for you know, penthouses that are selling for $40 million. So minus those two sides of the spectrum, I think sort of the middle chunk of the market is both. Matt, I think, you know, there's the 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 people that are standing by the sidelines and seeing what their contemporaries are doing and following suit. It's almost like dip your toe in the water, and if it's not too cold, we're going to jump in. And then there's people that sort of, you know, um, fly by the seat of their pants and make their own decisions. So there's not a really easy answer to that. I think every company has a system and a set of values and um, make decisions based on what's best best for them. Just to kind of drive home this hesitation, in a typical year, in a typical Q1, how many launches do you typically work on? Or how many typical launches are you actually launching versus previous years? Sorry, are you talking about this year in particular? Yeah, so like this Q1, how many of your projects are going to, how many of your clients' projects are going to launch versus previous years? Roughly. So we're a little different uh, animal because we, you know, we're, we're a boutique firm. There's only about 30 of us that work here. So we don't take on, uh, you know, more, more than we can handle. So um, I would say on a normal, whatever that means, year, we would have maybe between three to five launches within Q1. Right now, I would say we're probably going to have two, if that. There's one that's still uh, sitting on the fence. Waiting, waiting for someone else that's to right, go. That's right, that's um, right. You know, as I travel around North America, um, I get to see a lot of different marketing systems from different cities. I've always thought that Toronto has by far the most advanced marketing systems when it comes to high-rise. I don't think anybody does it like we do it. Um, can you explain to the listeners, because we have listeners in the U.S. and you know different parts of Canada, like, what is a typical launch like here and, and how is it unique from other markets? So, you know, I have analyzed other markets to a certain extent, but, um, you know, obviously I'm drinking the Kool-Aid of the system that I'm involved in the most. So I guess your question was, what does a typical launch look like? Correct. Uh, 
Great question again. I would say for our company, we're working on a typical launch, a communications program and, and marketing program and branding for 12, now we're seeing longer sales cycles to 18 months. And that's everywhere from ideation of the name of the project, trying to figure out what the communication pillars are, um, what is the value add, is there a transit story here? So really, you know, working on the underpinning of the communications of what we want to communicate and then developing a brand system that articulates that through the marketplace. So uh, a very comprehensive media plan that will exude this brand in all facets of media, um, social media, digital advertising, billboard campaigns, print campaigns, sometimes experiential campaigns, on-site campaigns, and really sort of building a buzz towards a, usually what happens is a small um, pre-launch with some um, VIP, if you will, uh, platinum brokers and uh, people in the industry to get the buzz. And then there's a public launch. And then usually after that public launch, um, there's some sort of a maintenance campaign in, uh, in the marketplace for sometimes three to six months, sometimes a few years, depending on the project. So it's a very robust program. Every one of my questions is, had you start with saying great question? I'm now really worried that like, I'm going to ask a question and be like, oh, that was a bad one. Okay. So uh, hopefully you can, uh, you can delete that cause I don't want to be uh, <laughs> redundant. Um, I think Gladstone is known for a lot of things in the marketplace. I know you just talked about you guys are a full service agency that covers builder from start to finish. But what, what do you think you're best known for? Like, what's your secret sauce um, that the world can know about? I think when it comes down to marketing, you're really talking about storytelling and the narrative and eliciting a response from a targeted demographic. There's a lot of beautiful, um, you know, pieces that come out of our shop, but we don't create something and throw it against the wall and hope that it sticks because that's sort of, you know, subjective art. And the difference between art and marketing is you're putting something out into the marketplace that is educating somebody that is, eliciting a response from them. So I think really at the core of what we do, I think Gladstone really understands how to tell stories. And I don't think that um, really the focus has been placed on that with some of our competitors and um, not to point fingers, but you know, if, if we, you know, if we can't, you know, tell a story with, one line of copy or one image or a 15 second teaser post, then we're not doing our job, right? Sometimes you need to pack in so much information into a small period of time. Like some of our billboards, like you need to drive by, you have three seconds to articulate a message to somebody. And, you know, we take that seriously. We have this saying, I mean, maybe this is showing my age, but, um, we had this saying in our shop, like, you know, what's going to make, you know, people stop turning pages, you know, in a magazine. And now it's like, you know, what can we do to get people's thumb to stop scrolling on a phone? And I think for the most part, we've figured out how to get people to, to stop moving their thumbs and pay attention to what we're doing. Yeah, I, I would say from an outsider perspective, no doubt storytelling, but especially in video. I mean, your videos, if you watch a builder video, you know when it's a Gladstone video. Like there's, there's nothing 
like it and it, you have a, an incredible ability to tell stories through them. So appreciate um, that. That that would be my my comments. You know, I I talked a, a bit about Toronto is unique, I think, in North America and the way we launch. And I think we we are by far the most advanced here. So where do you look to for inspiration? Is there another city that you look to and how kind of how they launch projects and to give you inspiration, or is is there something specific that gives you inspiration? Um so you know, we do analyze different markets throughout the world, but, you know, as you know, um, more than most, real estate markets in different cities, uh, in different countries around the world work differently. You know, you go to New York and, you know, they're building before they're even selling sometimes. So there are different strategies in terms of looking outward for inspiration. I personally don't really look at the same industry that I'm in. You know, I will go to, you know, traditional art galleries to see, you know, how people are using colors and palettes. And, you know, I just read, um, I just read a great book called Shoe Dog by uh, Phil Knight. I love that book. Right? But I mean, you know, like looking at entrepreneurs and, and how people are telling their story and looking at other industries and, you know, uh, learning about things that I otherwise wouldn't learn. Like, you know, we do 90% real estate, but if I found, you know, we had an opportunity to work on a toothpaste brand, I would become a fucking expert on toothpaste in a couple of weeks, right? So you look at a brand like, you know, let's say Nike, for instance, and really sort of studying their um, their marketing, and they're not about, you know, what. They don't talk about the kind of rubber that their shoes are made of or the type of leather or the quality. They celebrate athletes, Right. And I find that so fascinating because they're not talking about their product. They're celebrating humans. And I think for me to take that sensibility and translate that into real estate marketing, um, if you look at our work, it celebrates lifestyle more than most and humans and evoking that feeling of like, dude, we're selling things to people that are going to be the biggest purchase that they're ever going to make in their entire life. This is an emotional experience. So if there's not emotion baked into your campaign any asshole can hire a rendering company to render out a building right you go to china there's ten thousand rendering companies how do you dig deeper and tell an emotional story that really sort of resonates on a human level that's really what excites me the the majority of purchases i would actually be willing to say kind of all pre-construction purchases in southern ontario are investor I mean, you might think you're an end user, but when this thing is built eight years from now, you might have a wife and three kids um, and you're not going to live there. So you are, you are investing in the future of that, that project. When you're talking about telling a story, like how do you differentiate telling a story to an end user versus to an investor, whether it's a mom and pops investor, maybe they own one or two units or kind of a larger conglomerate. Like how, how does that story differ? I'm sorry. I have to say it again. That's a great question. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry. It, it really is because I get asked that question all the time. Um, so people, whether you're an investor, whether you're an end user, um, people want to feel like they're expressing themselves through the decisions that they're making, Matt. Okay. So whether that's the type of clothes that you buy, 
the vodka that you pick out when you look at the shelf in the LCBO, which label do you gravitate towards? What speaks to you? When you're with your friends and having a dinner party, what tunes are you playing in the background that, you know, fit the vibe of that evening, but also are an extension of you and your choices? I'm sorry, but when you meet somebody, I don't care who you are. You ever read a a book by Malcolm Gladwell called Blink? Yes. So you know that really the underpinning of that is people are making decisions at the blink of an eye faster than their brains can even keep up. You're looking at someone's haircut, their watch, the idiosyncrasies in their facial expressions. So my point to your question is they're very similar campaigns. Okay. I am a condo investor. All right. I, I invest in, in condominiums. So when I see a condo marketed in the marketplace, even though that's not going to be somewhere where I'm going to live, I am still gravitating to that brand because it's something that I'm going to be owning for an investment. So what do the amenities look like? What does the area look like? What does the branding look like? What does the retail downstairs look like? And more importantly, and I say this to my clients all the time, you want to see the style of building that you're going to be marketing to the people that are going to be renting your unit. It's the same program, Matt, because the renters want to see that it's the same program. You're telling a story. I couldn't agree more. And I think that is one of the real differentiators of our market. And and it's kind of a weird thing to say, but it's essentially sums it up. I think and you're creating a sense of FOMO. Like a sense of fear of missing out. You want people to be buying because they don't want to miss out on that chance to live in a building that was designed by Pharrell or, you know, has this is an incredible kind of aura to it that you're creating. Um, do you want to talk at all about kind of creating FOMO or sure. working with brand, you know, a branded community is, you know, obviously a hot topic these days. Um, and Toronto has a lot of them from... Pharrell to De Niro to, I don't know, the list goes on. I mean, we, we kind of have every famous person. Um, so I, I guess maybe there's two questions is how do you create that FOMO? But the second part is like having a branded condo, what does that actually bring to the marketplace? If it's Pharrell, does it matter that he's actually designing the building or the amenities or do you just want that name associated with it? Okay, so there's a, a lot, lot to, to unpack. That's there. a lot to unpack right there. So, uh, I mean, I, the first, the, the last thing you said I could speak to you, um, I was fortunate enough to work on that Pharrell project and, uh, you know, um, Reserve did a great job with assembling an, an incredible team for that. Um, but I will tell you, I was quite surprised with his um, involvement. Like, we had a brain session in Los Angeles. He was literally pulling his sleeves up and, and picking finishes and very adamant about water features. And, you know, it was as far as like, he gave us a song and, and the architect, you know, Mansoor took the song and extrapolated sound waves and, and articulated the, uh, architectural volumes of the balconies based on the sound wave. So, I mean, so, cool. so yeah, it's, it's super cool. So to me, I think that that project is an anomaly. It wasn't like reserve just picked some famous dude and slapped his name on it. He was actually really in involved in the decision-making. So I have a lot of respect uh, for that, but um, to really get to the essence of your, of your question, I think it reverts back to what I was saying before, right? Um, people make decisions based on expressions on how, um, 
these properties align with their own value systems and their own style and their own grace. I, you know, I use this analogy all the time, right? When you go and choose a bottle of wine, you know, a lot of the times, you know, even people, and, and I work in the wine industry and do branding, you gravitate to the shape of a bottle, to um, the packaging, to the way something is presented to you. And if someone's going to have the style and grace to, you know, art direct the packaging and, you know, make a beautiful label and um, articulate, you know, the nuances of the mise-en-scene and the... Um, terroir of the wine on the label then that's probably an extension of the decisions that they're making deep into the wine right so i always say if you're authentic to a brand and you're packaging it in a beautiful way and your developer client has the know-how and the sense to spend money on marketing and packaging this thing to me those are decision excuse me decisions that the developer is making that will probably run deep into what's behind the walls what is the window system? What's the floor made of? Because, you know, someone that appreciates making decisions at the front end will usually back that up on the back end, right? So it just, it's a sense of quality. And, and, and one more analogy I'll, I'll make, you need to package things in a way that are appetizing to people. I have a lot of friends that work in the art industry and they would say that, you know, a painting a beautiful painting that was sitting on the wall of the gallery for a year and a half, they changed the frame and it sold in a day because it was packaged differently. Or, you know, you have your favorite restaurant that you love, but you order takeout during COVID and it comes in this shitty little takeout container. The food isn't as good because you don't have the ambiance of the, of the, music and the chatter of the people and the the essence of the restaurant so how you package something and spoon feed it to somebody in an authentic way i'm not saying putting lipstick on a pig is very very important i know that was a long-winded no that that was amazing you know it made me think of the study i remember reading and it talked about people's thoughts on the food i think like 10 people were given like the exact same soup but they were given differently weighted spoons right and it was like the, the heavier spoon with the better shape just like always won. It was the better, the better soup, even though they were all the same. Um, so no doubt about that. Um, and I think that does though move beyond that study into, if you care that much about the spoon, you're probably going to care that much about creating your soup and put that level of love into it. And when you create a limited amount of that soup or a limited amount of sweets or a limited amount of units, if that building is packaged in a way that is authentic but still beautiful and artful and has style and grace and you're asking people to be a part of this movement and and own here and reside here people want to be a part of something that feels real you know and it creates that fomo i mean there's a limited amount of those pharrell designed units correct um, what about the vip market you know do you think that VIP is changing in 2020? And I'm not saying is it good, is it bad, but like do you think- Are you talking about like platinum brokers? The platinum brokers. Do you think that way of selling is changing in 2024? Or do you think it's going to come back um, to that methodology? Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a deep question. And it's a complicated question. Um, listen, the fact of the matter is in the Toronto market, there's a hundred people that do 90% of the deals and it's, it's really strange and it's a little bit broken. Um, I don't want to speak too much about it uh, because some of these people are dear friends of mine and, 
Um, I just feel that, listen, I use this analogy all the time. Like if you want to reach a large amount of people, you can take a megaphone and try to shout to, you know, a hundred thousand people at once, or you can take a pebble and throw it into, you know, 10 pools of people. And those 10 pools of people will plug you into 10,000 people. So as much as it's strange that these people have control for developers, it is the best way to tap into larger markets. And listen, a lot of the times it's segregated on ethnicity or background and you have your, you know, Southeast Asian uh, contingency and you have your, I don't know, Jewish agents and you have your, you know, Chinese agents and they have access to a pool of people that, you know, you normally wouldn't be able to have access to. So there is great value to it. And these people hold a lot of power and, um, a lot of them are great people and they're good at what they do. And, it wouldn't be set up this way if they didn't perform and deliver. Do I think that things are changing slowly? Yes. Do I feel like, you know, it's like Toronto trying to turn around a hundred year old oil tanker? Yes. It's very, very slow, but it's slowly changing slowly. Changing subjects, something we kind of briefly mentioned. How am I doing by the way? This is my first podcast. You're crushing it. Crushing it. (laughs) <laughs> and I know I'm crushing it because you keep saying great questions. So. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. We talked a bit about, you know, when you looked for inspiration and you talked about, you know, you don't really look outside that much. I find that the Toronto market is a very siloed. Have you ever considered expanding to the U.S.? Like, is that something that we could see kind of Gladstone entering the U.S.? We've seen some marketing firms dabble outside of Toronto, uh, but I've never seen um, an agency really try to take other markets by storm. Absolutely. I think um, the short answer is um, my partner, who's also my wife, who I run all decisions by, um, we were really focusing on what, you know, what does the next five, 10 years look like for Gladstone Media? And I know we've had this conversation before. I've, we've been very fortunate. Um, We probably could have quadrupled the size of our Toronto firm. Um, over the last few years, we decided not to for many reasons. One is we we're, we're seeing some of our contemporaries in this space, and respectfully, um, you know, the, their their work is is starting to get watered down and um, pumping out more sort of commodity uh, projects, and the focus on on the work has drifted a little bit. So um, our motto for Gladstone Media has always been attract don't seek we've never had a salesperson we've never really actively gone out and tried to find business we've had a motto where we surround ourselves with incredible people i surround myself with people that are much more talented uh, than i am um and we put our head down and just try to pump out really good work and matt over the last few years it's being recognized and noticed by some larger markets in the united states so um, we are in the midst of closing a deal to open a division in Los Angeles. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Which is very, very exciting. And, um, I think, uh, two more cities that we're probably going to micro market in are New York and Miami. Very exciting. Yeah, it is. It's super exciting for sure. But again, we're not going to take on more than we can chew and really focusing on quality and not quantity. And I think that's our value prop. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. You said something that I've always believed in when, when I, launched and owned Buzz Buzz Home was 
build an incredible product and people will come. Like we just wanted to build a great product and it worked. People came to us because of it. And I think it's very similar. Uh, so excited to see what you do in LA, Miami, and New York. Thanks, That's, man. Uh, and just awesome. for the record, I mean, you know, you wrote the playbook on, you know, how to build a company and we, you know, we talk about you all the time. So much respect for you, man. Honest to God, you've done so well. You're making me blush. So, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back onto the launches. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you're allowed to talk about this, but what do you think is going to be the most exciting launch of 2024? Ooh. Uh, see, this is where I just feel like I, I, I can't. You can name all your clients. Uh, you know what? I'm going to reserve that. Let's just say that, um, you know, between the months of March and September, uh, you're probably going to see some of the best work, I would say, that's come out of my shop and some of the best work that's come out of Toronto. We are sitting on some of the best work that we've ever done in the history of this company, and it's going to blow the lid off Toronto. I can't wait to hear more about that. Um, we focused a lot on high rise. Yeah. What about low rise? Like, do you don't have any low rise builders doing anything interesting, unique, like to the level that we're talking about marketing on the high rise side? Is there, is there any low rise builders that you're like, man, those guys are, that's Crushing awesome. It. Uh, the full, the full honest answer, Matt, is we don't, I don't do a lot of low rise mainly because, um, a lot of developers just don't have the appetite, um, to sort of engage us to do what we do best for us. Um, for us to work on a low rise project usually is like bringing a gun to a knife fight. You really, you don't need us for a low rise project. I will say though, a few of our clients, we've done some really beautiful things on low rise. Um, I know that, uh, Acorn, uh, in particular has, has, um, engaged us for a few of their projects and, you know, they saw value in, in pushing the envelope and doing some artist collaborations and really, you know, putting forth, uh, an artful campaign, but, um, full honesty, man, I really can't talk to you too much about low rise. It's not my world. We're, we're sort of an urban, uh, centralized, uh, marketing firm. Okay. Moving on to the next question. Yes. Last question. Sure. Um, and I'm kind of curious how this question affects where we are in 2024 and what it looked like in the past. Um, and when you're doing a launch campaign, kind of pre pre-launch even, what constitutes a successful launch? Like what, what metrics do you look at and be like, Hey, they had this year that, you know, they were aiming for 500 registrants. Last year, we were looking at 2000 registrants. What do you, what do, what do you and your clients take as being a successful pre-launch marketing launch? A successful pre-launch. So there's a lot of KPIs. There's a lot of key performance indicators and, you know, 20 years ago, it would be, you know, how many registrations do you have um, before you go to market? So there's a lot of things to consider. And some of the metrics in some of the marketing pieces are easier to read than others, but they all work systematically with each other. For instance, you know, um, still to this day, there are real estate agents that will spend, you know, five, $10,000 a month on putting their faces on transit benches. Do they know that those convert into sales exactly? No, they actually don't, but they know at the end of the day, they're selling real estate and that face on the bench is part of a larger program. So, um, I would say the metrics that we look at that are easy, that are right there in front of our faces are engagements, uh, video views, um, cost per acquisition, um, 
registration still. I mean, uh, we're working on a campaign right now for um, a developer, um, Devron, for 101 Spadina. Really, really beautiful building. Um, great architect, Audek. I think um, uh, it, it, it's an anomaly. I and, love the arches on that building. Oh, it's just a stunning building, you know. I mean, that's just me personally. That's my actual personal taste. That sort of, you know, turn of the century, you know, industrial revolution, New York style, Robert Stern style building. But anyways, we have almost 10,000 registrations for that project. And that's almost unheard of in this market. So um, there's registrations, there's um, engagements. There's also like the, the audible buzz on the street right are people talking about it you know are are people asking questions are we getting emails you know when can we see that so i would say general buzz registrations um engagement um and really sort of your your, your social and digital footprint jeremy gladstone gladstone media thank you so much for being on the show really appreciate it thanks for having me matt Thank you for tuning into Livable Launch, your go-to podcast for all things condo and new home launches. We hope today's episode has given you valuable insights into the exciting world of real estate development and the minds behind these remarkable projects. We're incredibly grateful to our esteemed guests and our dedicated listeners like you who continue to make this podcast a success. Remember, Livable Launch is here to keep you informed, inspired, and engaged with the ever-evolving landscape of condo and new home developments. We value your feedback and want to ensure that Livable Launch remains your trusted source of information. So don't hesitate to reach out. Remember, we're all in this exciting journey together. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on our website or social media platforms. And if you're a builder industry expert who wants to share your expertise and be featured on our show, please get in touch. We'd love to hear about your latest projects, launches, and insights. Thank you again for joining us on Livable Launch. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Stay up to date with the latest condo and new home launches, trends, and insider knowledge. Until next time, keep building, dreaming, and exploring the world of real estate. Remember, Livable Launch is here to guide you for every step of the way. I'm Matthew Slutsky, and this is Livable Launch signing off. Happy building, and see you soon.